So are you still active in the blues these days? Yeah. What kind of stuff are you working on? Um, well, a lot of producing. I'm doing a lot of producing for Delmark these days and um, compiling probably three reissue CDs for Ace Records in England, um, working on the Delmark tribute for the Blues Festival in June, and uh, writing a Hall of Fame induction speech for the Aces for Memphis. So um, there's a lot going on Boy, between those right? things. So you're keeping quite busy. Right. Yeah, well, that's one of the blessings of retirement. <laughs> Still busy, but at least I can choose how I'm busy. And you wonder how you got anything else done when you're working, right? Well, thank goodness I was always good at multitasking. <laughs> so I'm here in Chicago with Dick Sherman, Blues Hall of Fame inductee, uh, record producer, engineer, writer, journalist, also, I hear you get credit for your background vocals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did you <laughs> if ever you play music? you want to call them vocals and clapping, too. <laughs> I've clapped on a couple records. Did you, did you ever play an instrument? Yeah, I've I played guitar. I had piano lessons. I play a little bit of harmonica and bass, but I, I'm mainly a guitarist. I'm not professional, but there are plenty of people who ask me if I want to sit in when I, when I go see him, but I usually figure I'm there like everybody else to hear the person who's there, not some guy they've never heard of get up and <laughs> play, fumble through a couple tunes. But it, it's, you're probably better than just fumbling through them, am I correct to assume that? Or well, no? I mean, I can show people the concept in the studio if I need to. So, well. Right, okay. Um, I should say that we're at the Chicago Hilton, about a block away from Buddy Guys. Once in a while you will hear... Uh, the L train go by, and most consistently you will hear construction going on in the background. So I apologize for that, but it's better than doing the interview in the lobby. Um, tell me about how you first got into music. Well, um, I always tell people on my father's side, I'm a direct descendant of classical composer Felix Mendelssohn. I always tell people that when they're listening to one of my productions and they hear a whirling noise in the background, that's him spinning in his grave. And on the other, my mother's side, both my maternal grandparents were deaf. So uh, that's my combination of musical <laughs> heritage. Although my deaf grandfather had a lot of music in him. He used to walk around singing a lot. Um, so clearly there, there was something in there. And I had piano lessons when I was a kid, eventually discovered rock and roll on the radio, um, that and a few other things around Seattle where I grew up led me into blues and then I had a chance to go to the University of Chicago and came to Chicago right after the riots right across the street from the Hilton where we are now in 1968. It was right upstairs from us where Hubert Humphrey could smell the tear gas making its way up to the presidential suite. Um, anyhow, I came back here and I just I'd already been encouraged by Lewis Myers and Junior Wells when they came through Seattle the week of what was supposed to be my senior prom, but I went to see them. Um, and um, so I came back here to go to school and just got right into the blues scene quickly and was very fortunate during my one year here, um, I got to be good friends and made a lot of club tapes of uh, Otis Rush, Lewis Myers, Earl Hooker, Holland Wolf, um, got to be real good friends with Johnny Shines, Willie Dixon, um, you know, there, there are a few more, but those were some of the, the main ones who were really kind to me. Oh, Magic Sam also, um, 
on the door to my dormitory room, somebody had carved in six-inch letters, Dick Magic Sam called. I was playing phone tag with him about a dance I had booked him to play on, on campus. So so I got sucked totally into the blues scene that uh, year of 1968-69. And then uh, I decided it was too much of a tug-of-war. Um, I was doing fine at the University of Chicago, but... On Wednesday night, if I had a choice between going to Peppers to tape record Earl Hooker or studying vocabulary for a German quiz, um, it was a pretty easy choice to make. So I decided to go back to Seattle, where I also had a girlfriend, and get school out of the way and then come back to Chicago. And that was how it worked out. I um, bounced back and forth for a few years, um, had a radio show in Seattle, was writing for uh, Blues Unlimited and Living Blues. And then I got my master's degree in library science in Seattle, but I went through library school on an Illinois state library scholarship that had a work agreement. So I had a job back here when I finished school and um, came back here in 74. I find that amazing that you actually had the discipline. And I'm not sure how much of this was based on the fact that you had a girlfriend back in Seattle, but that you had the knowledge to say, Maybe if I stayed here, I won't be attending as many classes as I need to. Well, there, part, part of it was that it was pretty obvious, but also um, part of it was that I, I didn't like the way the university related to the neighborhood. You know, most of the, they, they told you not to go more than about two blocks from campus, and hey, that's where all, all, all the fun was for me. Um, you know, Peppers and Teresa's were just a couple miles away, and a lot of the blues greats were very close to that um, Hyde Park area, too. But all, also, I felt like undergraduates were at the very bottom of the totem pole, and they worked your tail off and graded really hard, and it cost a fortune. And if you didn't have a lot of purpose academically, which I didn't, I mean, most people my age were in college because if they didn't, they'd go to Vietnam. Um, so I just figured, let, let me get school out of the way and then come back here and, you know, not have that That's um, still impressive, choice to though. make. Um, tell me about, what do you think it was about the blues that connected with you? Well, one, I mean, I, part of it was just the music. I always loved that. And, um, Beyond, it was exotic, but beyond being exotic, the thing that struck me was compared to the top 40 um, pop stuff that I was hearing on the radio, blues just struck me as a lot more adult and about concerns that were a lot more real. And uh, that had a lot of appeal to me as a young guy growing up and trying to figure out who I was. Um, of course, later I came to realize that just because it was an adult perspective didn't necessarily mean it was a great adult perspective. The blues <laughs> lyrics like, if you whoop her when she needs it, the judge will not let you explain, or right. me and the devil walking side by side, I'm going to beat my woman till I get satisfied. So there were certain parts of that adult perspective I didn't quite buy into, but that was a big part of the attraction. And, and I just loved the, <clears throat> the music. I loved the feeling to it. Um, the emotion, the 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 rawness of it, and uh, you know, I can't really explain. I mean, Ray Ray Charles said if a white person ever really sang the blues, it would be a, a Jewish person, and you know, there's a lot of minor key and the Jewish songs, so that could have been part of it too. But it was just a combination, and and also um, the fact there were a couple of things that were prevalent then too. One was it was civil rights time and there have been a lot of people who have noted the 
parallels between loving blues and being part of the civil rights movement is all struggle for the underdog. Um, and not only the underdog, but also being aware of the British invasion and um, some of the other the acts that blues had influenced. I mean, all the rock bands up in the Pacific Northwest played rhythm and blues. They, they all played Duke Peacock horn arrangements and they liked Earl King and people like that. Um, you know, realizing its importance historically um, right. that meant a lot. You know, I was one of those people who would, you know, look at the album by the white blues band and see who wrote the songs and who the liner notes mentioned and go back and um, chase their music and put it together. But you had a time when you were doing that, it was easily, you could actually find those people. The like, people, yeah. yeah the, like, the, the music was a lot harder to find then. And Seattle, I ordered Hoodoo Man Blues and no, it was West Side Soul and Born Under a Bad Sign, and it took me about six months to not be able to get either of them. <laughs> and I, I pretty much knew then what, what every um, record store had in their tiny little blues section in Seattle for a couple of years because their pickings were, were so limited there. But yeah, when I got here, there were so many people still around, and the people were very kind and very welcoming to me. I mean, for one thing, they, they thought that the few people like me um, might be able to help them, and most of them were pretty much flat on their backs then. And they thought it was kind of interesting and surprising that we knew so many details about them. Later, they realized that was just one form of knowledge, and just because a white person from France could walk into a club and recite their discography didn't mean that person understood how they lived or you know, the fact that they played a bunch of soul tunes from the jukebox at their gigs and stuff like that. But uh, they, they were just so kind to me, the way they would welcome me into, into the club, and they were great about letting me tape record them. Um, the first time I taped Holland Wolf after he'd had me over to his house for dinner and then drove me out to his gig to tape him all night and was driving me home, um, you know, I, I was reassuring him that I wasn't going to sell him or anything like that. It was just that I had all his records and couldn't get enough of his music, and... Um, he said, that's too bad. I was hoping you'd sell them and make yourself some money. Can I ask you, what what device did you use to record these live Um I had a Sony reel-to-reel and some real cheap microphones and a couple of Y-Jacks. And, and did you know what you, like, you've never released any of this stuff. Well, some of it's come out on bootlegs overseas and um, Chris Strackwitz put out four songs eventually that, of Earl Hooker that I recorded at Peppers and Teresa's. Um, there's a CD, uh, one Earl Hooker CD that's got all, all four of the tunes on it. Um, so a little bit of it's come out, but you know, my intention was not to have it come out. I mean, I meant what I said. I, um, you know, I really didn't want to sell it and make, and make money. And I kind of made a point of not aspiring to a professional quality, partly because of that. Right. But it was, you know, was, at that time, a lot of the main people around Chicago either weren't recording actively or had never recorded an album. I mean, when I got back here, there was a whole generation of people like Lonnie Brooks and Jimmy Johnson and um, Bobby King and... Eddie Clearwater, all that kind of group of people who um, there weren't Magic Slim, no albums. Right. So the only, the only way to get their music was to make a tape in a club. So 
did you before you did that before you did the live recordings did you record other things like how did you did you get a tape deck because you wanted those, to those were the first live well i i already had i mean i had real to real tapes in seattle that's how i listened to most of the music i was lucky i had a good friend in seattle named steve bailey who's still a blues player um bass player guitar player harmonica player vocalist who re- records act- actively there and um it was a good setup. I had a tape recorder. He had a job at a grocery store. So, you know, we'd go looking for records and he'd, he'd basically, he'd buy them and I'd tape record them. <laughs> but, um, so I already had my tape recorder, but I had never made a live recording before I started making these tapes in the clubs in, in Chicago. As a amateur recordist, what did you learn about the process of how to record a live band back then? Uh... You know, I basically just kind of let it, let it roll. Um, one thing that I did do is let the tape keep rolling between the songs. You know, there, there are certain albums that particularly came out in Europe or from tapes that uh, Europeans made where they would stop it in between songs and, you know, maybe that saved the battery or made it a little more concise. But sometimes pretty interesting stuff happened and I didn't want to miss any starts or or endings but um, you know they're really what well one thing I learned early but I wasn't able to apply it all the time in clubs was I I had a friend named Tom Swan who at that at the time I met him he was working for chess records he was mostly reissues Uh, he was responsible for the vintage series that came out in the late 60s and early 70s and he did produce part of after the rain by muddy waters but um, he went with me one time to record a demo tape of the Aces when they were just getting back together. And um, he taught me the importance of air. Um, and I always like to have my, I still do this in the studio, even for close miking, like to have a few inches between the mic and the speaker because nobody is listening with their head pressed against an amplifier. Right. Um, and air adds a lot of character and depth to the sound. And you, I don't want to be too far away but that was one of the most valuable lessons um, that I learned early on. Was and don't w- try to make it too clean. Were you where? Oh, sorry. Were you using how many mics? One mic or four? Four usually. mics. Okay. Yeah. So two front, two back. Well, I I you know usually if there's a couple guitar amps, I'd hang one on each of them, and they're all singing through their guitar amps. The only one who had a PA system was Wolf, and his was like a nickel and dime PA. Um, and then I'd maybe, you know, put one on the bass and drums just were kind of by luck, you know, it just kind of <laughs> seeped in. I, I knew nothing about how to mic drums correctly. And then, do you still have these tapes? Yeah. Wow. How, what, like, what, what kind of collection is, do you have? Like, it's got to be quite a few tapes, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I've got, got a, well, I mean, I, I, there was a time when I taped every, every records and CDs just for backup too, but I've got over 3,500 7-inch mostly three and three-quarter stereo or mono reels still. Wow. I've digitized some fair amount of it. I mean, the things that are my favorites, but yeah, I still have it. The other question I have is you, you were talking about um, basically that the law of the musicians were basically living hand-to-mouth and it was tough for them. Can I ask you, when you first got into blues, what was your idea of these musicians and what... What perception did you have about them, and then how was that changed when you met them? Um, 
other than just the fact that they are amazing, legendary musicians. Um, there, a couple stereotypes changed for me in kind of opposite directions. One was I thought that most of them had more status in the community than they had at that point in the late 60s. Blues really was at a low ebb in the black community. It had been supplanted by James Brown and a lot of, of other things. And um, so the fact that so many of the legendary, to me, artists were living hand to mouth, um, you know, that that changed my perception. And like I said, a lot of the reasons they were so nice to people like me and the other people on the scene like me at that time were because they thought maybe we could help them and they needed any help. I mean, most of them didn't have any kind of management. They didn't have a recording contract. Gigs were few and far between and pretty shaky when they when they had them um and then on the other hand holland wolf really surprised me in the opposite direction i mean his early records especially were so ambient i pictured him as some kind of feral beast to live back in a cave in the woods or something and it turned out he lived incredibly middle class he wrote he drove a pontiac station wagon lived in a brick bungalow which is still well kept on the south side not in his family anymore um he had you know white plastic covers on the living room furniture and a picture on the wall that lit up when you plugged it in and you know, just all the middle-class trappings. So, <laughs> Is this from his songwriting? Would that be correct? Well, his and his wife was very middle-class. She had a good uh, job, um, office job. And his younger daughter, who I'm still friends with, who's two days older than I, um, she was working at uh, a title and trust company. She had dropped out of community college to try to figure out who she was. Um, so... Yeah, he. This was before he um, won his big lawsuit about his songwriting, but he was still getting some money from Chess, and he was working a lot. Um, you know, one thing about Wolf, he stayed and worked in the ghetto t literally till he died. Um, you know, Muddy, it was more that he couldn't get jobs in the ghetto. I think he probably would have been willing to work in the ghetto more, but the work just wasn't there. People used to say his pictures painted outside on the front of peppers and he can't get a gig there um but you know wolf stayed in the community up right up to the end and, and you became very good friends with him right yeah i mean i it's hard to say very good but certainly they're, they're particularly in 69 and 70 um you know i made a few tapes of him and he was always great you know when i was going to be in town you know he'd have me over and his wife would cook me a nice dinner and his daughter would be the greeting committee while he was getting ready for the gig and we'd have a nice nice meal and then he'd drive me out to the west side and i'd tape him and he'd, he'd drive me back and give me all kinds of advice i think um what appealed to him about me was more than maybe even more than music what he loved most in life was telling people how to live and he took me for a young man who he could give a lot of of fatherly advice to any yeah. that you could share with us um yeah and actually some of this is already on online i jesse finkelstein did an interview with me in memphis last may and i told him a bunch of this and he he posted a video clip of it it's it's on youtube but um one of the <clears throat> things we one time we were driving and he was telling me about safe driving and a guy cut in front of us without signaling his lane change and wolf turned me and said see that guy there he nearly made me have an occlusion <laughs> <coughs> and um 
the first time when he was driving me home, he was talking about Muddy and um, it's to see that trouble with Muddy Waters. He hang around with too many loose women. You see, these women today, they be wearing their skirts so short, they showing two faces to the world. <laughs> but uh, he uh, he told him, he said, my daddy was a foreman and he raised me right. So, you know, he was just kind of an authoritarian, um, sort of disciplinarian kind of guy. Um, but, um, you know, he always, even on the bandstand, he'd, he'd lecture the musicians between and during songs. These boys think they know music, but they don't know life. And... Uh, I wonder, as a young man, did you know, having like having close encounters with these grades, did, did you know what was actually going on? Did you appreciate it for what it well, was? Well, Wolf, every second. I mean, it wasn't like later I look back and, wow, I was so lucky. Right. I mean, every second I was in his presence, I appreciated what a great privilege it was. Um, and um, that's basically true. I mean, these were, these were people that I, that I worshipped. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I knew that it was a, a, a rare thing. I didn't realize how fleeting the club scene would be because I, I just happened to catch the very tail end of it. And, of course, I didn't know how soon a lot of these people would be gone. I mean, Earl Hooker and Magic Sam were two of the people that were nicest to me, and then I got to know the best. And, um, you know, they both basically were killed by the... 1969 American Folk Blues Festival tour, but you know, not much more than a year after I had met them, less in Sam's case, um, you know, they were both gone. So, um, you know, that I wish I had known how little time I had in some cases, but you know, ne- you never do. It's it's a, it's, I mean, when I came into the blues, which is many many years later, I think one of the first life lessons that I got was just how life is fleeting. And that these people you meet, they're not around forever. And, and especially in the last 10 years, that's 15 years or whatever, we've lost a lot of people. And, uh, but, I mean, you saw that firsthand from, the, from very early yeah. on. Yeah. Well, I remember <clears throat> in uh, 1997, a whole lot of people passed away, including Luther Allison, my good friend Fenton Robinson. Um, my first weekend of that year, I was out at Johnny Hartsman's funeral in Oakland. Um, <clears throat> Junior Wells died later that year. Jimmy Rogers died later that year. And Junior was the, <clears throat> the last of those to go, I think. And shortly after, there was a sort of tribute at House of Blues. And backstage, we were all just kind of looking at each other. It was almost like post-traumatic. Uh, syndrome. Mm-hmm. You're just kind of looking around to see who survived the bomb. I wonder, so when you first got into the blues and you, you worked with all these people or, or you you watched all these people, then you got a chance to work with them. Tell me about that. And yeah, that- there was a continuum in a lot of cases. Um, you know, when I was, before I got into producing, I was trying to figure, what can I do for this scene to advocate it? And um, I figured, well, I can try to tell white people especially more about the scene and how can I do that well first thing was I started writing for Blues Unlimited and later for Living Blues and then I had a radio show in Seattle from 1970 to 1973 on a 
uh, Pacifica station called KREB, and actually a bunch of my shows are posted on their website now. Um, So I kind of went through this continuum. I got back to Chicago and started, you know, learn by the seat of my pants like most of us about how to produce got more into that so there were a lot of artists including albert collins jody williams who thank god isn't gone yet but a bunch of other who who um i would play their music on my radio show talk about them maybe write an article that would help them get back out there um end up getting to work with them in the studio um and a lot of times learn from them. I mean, I did get a lot of great guitar lessons. I mean, I'm acutely aware of my limitations, but it's not because I didn't have some amazing teachers. <laughs> um, and then ultimately, unfortunately, write their obituary, give their their eulogy. But, I mean, I would pinch myself in the studio lots of times thinking, wow, you know, I, I mean, these were people that I used was advocating because I looked way, way, way up to them on the pedestal I had them on and to be working with them as peers in the studio, you know, that was an amazing thing to me. Tell me how that first happened. That, was the first album the oldest Rush album? Um, well, the first <clears throat> two things that I have credit for are things that I recorded when I came to Chicago on a visit in September 69, which was the fall I started school back out in Seattle, but I came back here before school started and um, recorded Earl Hooker, um, that was the stuff that Chris Strackwitz put out, um, and um, also helped a guy new named George Paulus run the tape recorder for a Big John Wrencher album that he recorded in his basement. He was going to record it with really crappy equipment, and I had access to something a little better. So, um, but I didn't really have a producer's role. Um, in those, but Bob Kester would invite me if I was in town, if he had a session. So I got to see a little bit of how he worked. And then um, <clears throat> shortly after I moved back here, he signed Otis. And a good friend of mine named Wes Race, who probably opened more doors for me than anybody else, he hooked me up starting my international new blues news column I used to write um, and told Delmark, hey, you should have Dick Sherman help you. He gets along well with Otis and he knows his repertoire. And that was kind of my foot into producing. People knew there were certain artists I was tight with and I knew every tune they did and all that kind of stuff. So I got involved in producing uh, Cold Day in Hell with Otis. And there's actually an unissued song where he sings about my then recent marriage. He sings about, um, calls my name and says he just got his neck in the news. He just joined the union and he actually was right. Two years later, we were already separated. But... Um, you know, from from that. Um, Sorry, can I ask you yeah. at that point, as a producer, can you explain to me back then what was your role as a producer? Um, well, meeting with Otis and Steve Tomaszewski from Delmark, who was really the lead producer on it, um, about what material and who the band was going to be, and then you know, to some extent, you know, t- taking them through the process, but not with a heavy kind of hand at all. And and the the, the live recordings that you did. Were they of any help to you, this new environment of recording? Um, not some, not really with the recording process. You know, that was another world. But, you know, it just made me more familiar with how blues people kind of like, like to operate. You know, so being around them on their gigs was a, was a good thing. And, and also they gave me a better sense of repertoire. Right. Um, but in terms of the recording process, not, not really. But then... Um, 
three other things that were really sort of big to me in the ensuing decade. I'll try to be concise about it. But one was my good friend Steve Weisner um, has started a label called Mr. Blues. And for his first quest is he came like many white blues enthusiasts. He came in as a historian to document things and, you know, not interested in the business side of it at all. That was a necessary evil that you had to do. The fun part was just digging up these people and recording them. But he started Mr. Blues and, um, I helped him a little bit and helped him a little with the Good Rock and Charles album and then uh, talked him into recording Eddie C. Campbell and um, helped him with King of the Jungle. And then the second thing was, for some reason I still don't fully understand, Bruce Iglauer decided that I could be useful and had a good ear and started bringing projects to me for feedback. Um, I remember Midnight Sun in particular, him playing the tapes and asking me if I had any any comments. And and then um, I had been a good friend of Albert Collins on the West Coast. He hardly ever came off the West Coast in those days. And um, I hooked Albert up for his first trip to Europe and um, talked Bruce into recording Albert. And um, that was my entree to Alligator. We did six Albert Collins together. Um, and then ended up doing uh, working with Bruce on uh, Johnny Winter, who Bruce originally introduced me to in 78. We all were very close friends. And once Johnny signed with Alligator, I was a parent. I was going to be a part of that. And then Roy Buchanan, we did together. And then I also did albums by Fent Robinson and Johnny Hartsman for Alligator. So, of course, that was huge for me. I learned more from Bruce than anybody else. And then the other thing through the 80s and into the 90s, was through my news column, a Dutch record company reached out to me and um, initially had me record Andrew Brown for them, who was a great friend of mine, one of the people I still miss the most. Um, and then I later did Fenton Robinson for them, Lacey Gibson, Little Smokey Smothers, Lee Shot Williams, and uh, Hip Link Chain. And... Uh, you know, that was a really nice thing for me, particularly through the, the 80s and 90s. Um, and then when uh, Virgin started their Point Blank label after the success of Gary Moore's uh, Still Got the Blues CD, um, I ended up working with Johnny Winter um, and Charlie Musselwhite and then did a posthumous Albert Collins live CD for them. And then in the 90s, Blind Pig started using me. I did Big Bill Morganfield and a couple Magic Slim CDs for them. And then finally, around 2007 or 8, Delmark signed ADC Campbell, and they asked me to come produce him. And his first album I did for them got a nomination for a Blues Music Award. And then uh, they had me do Lurie Bell, and I've ended up doing pretty much all my producing for them in the last decade, it's been a, a great setup for me. So I've done Eddie Lurie, Jimmy Burns, um, Guy King, Billy Flynn. Um, I have a nagging feeling I'm forgetting somebody I, I shouldn't forget <laughs> here. But um, the new Rockwell Avenue Blues Band CD that just came out. Um, I helped Steve Wagner at Delmark with a great tribute to Carrie Bell, mostly by his son, said it'll be out in May a 65th anniversary Delmark tribute that's going to be out um, in April. So recently it's been Delmark, but those are the main, those have been the main centers of activity 
uh, so, in my producing this, career. Was this a full-time job for you? It wasn't, was it? No, I always had a daytime job in the, in the library profession. Um, in the late 70s, I sort of started to carve a niche out um, working with library automation consortia um, out in the suburbs. And, you know, basically I was the head bureaucrat. I'm not a hot, hot shot techie. Um, you know, I hired those people to help me sleep better at night. Um, but, um, so I also had day jobs, but fortunately they were jobs where I had a lot of autonomy and they all thought what I was doing was cool. And for the last 28 years of my working career, I was the boss. So that, that made it easy, easier too. Um, but I was always doing producing on, uh, um, vacation time with, um, one, one exception, and that was in early 1984. I was unable to untangle the calendar, so I ended up doing Fenton Robinson in the afternoon for uh, the Dutch label. Later, Bruce picked it up and licensed that album. And then in the evening, I was going up to Winnetka and working with Bruce to produce Guitar Slinger <laughs> by Johnny Winter. So that time, I took um, three weeks of unpaid leave from my day job. And the two things that I figured out during that little stretch were, number one, I could be pretty good at it if I devoted myself to it full time. But number two, I didn't want to devote myself to it full time. I didn't make enough money. The stress level was too high. I wanted some bounce back time in between. So I've, I've been very fortunate because I've still accomplished the lion's share of what I wanted to accomplish. Uh, I didn't have to start a label to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, I also was able to, you know, buy a house and pay it off and, you know, li right. live in, in a, com a comfortable way, not being stressed out. I, I never really wanted to make a living from the blues, partly because it was always a poor people's music, but partly because I didn't want to feel like, and this is one another reason I never pursued the guitar thing, I didn't want to be competing for the crumbs on the table with these people who, uh, who I worshipped. Um, plus, I could just have a cleaner relationship with it and do projects I wanted to do um, if I wasn't depending on it for my groceries and clothes and the the roof over my head. Was there so you, we were talking about the hand to mouth lifestyle? Was there a point that it wasn't as desperate as that since the late 60s when you got into it? Because for musicians, yeah. Well, I mean, for most of, for big... most of them, yes. Um, and that was one of the happiest things over the years that I got to see was a lot of these people who were scuffling to keep a phone connected and driving something that probably had baling wire holding the exhaust onto the bottom of the car um, and living in crummy slum apartments to the point where they had a nice vehicle and probably a home um, that, that they owned and to see the, you know, more, more trips across the pond and around the country. And what um, would have been the, the cause of that? Like, well, I presume the work that you and people like Bruce yeah, and Laura well, have done. I mean, I'm not going to take a lot of credit for it, but the the white resurgence of it and Alligator and um, the dawn of festivals and more people going to, to Europe. I mean, the American Folk Blues Festival in the 60s and 70s was a huge groundbreaker. Um, but yeah, the, this whole new circuit of white clubs, the North Side opened up to these artists um, in Chicago in a way that it hadn't before. Um, so it's just, you know, more work and people like Bruce, you know, other other labels that like came along like Rounder and Blacktop. Um, Was there a moment where you thought, 
that you definitely noticed the change that things were a bit better for these musicians well yeah really in the 80s um and uh you know i mean part of it was the alligator thing you know when bruce started signing people like johnny and roy and lonnie mack and um you know those were great years i mean i knew that we were kind of riding a wave then you know when these great people would come into town because they wanted to do a blues record and they wanted to do it with us i mean that was awesome to me um but robert cray and stevie ray vaughn and um more and more festivals i mean there was a long period in the 70s where about the only blues festival i knew about i knew there were occasional little things in berkeley but was the festival at notre dame um that was it after Ann Arbor bit the dust in 1974. But then in the 80s, there started being a lot more and a lot more people started going, uh, like I say, overseas and this whole circuit around the country, places like the Zoo Bar and a lot of places in Boston. And, um, you know, but the 80s was when I really saw a lot of that change. And, uh, you know, radio, white radio was more accessible to that. And I give Bruce a lot of credit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he knocked down a lot of those barriers almost single-handedly, but but that was when I saw the the, the change. Um, and the the blues audience was a more much more affluent audience than it ever had had been when that happened too. People interviewed said, "Well, what do you think about yuppies in the blues?" Well, their money is as good as anybody else, and I just look at the artists and they're living so much better. That's a big part of the, the bottom line for me. Tell me about Europe. Tell me about. I mean, I know that the blues musicians went to Europe a long time ago, but it's a bigger thing now and has been for the last few years. Did you, does that surprise you at all? Um, no, just because it's been going on for so long. And, you know, when I first got back here, the, all the artists looked at Europe as the promised land. I mean, that's both Magic Sam and Earl Hooker shouldn't have gone on that tour in 69. Sam was recovering from... Um, a bad a heart incident and they told him he needed bed rest but it was his first trip over and for those guys it was like they looked at it as going to heaven and earl hooker was really too weak and sick from his tb to go through it and he knew he was never going to be back when he went over they i've got a bunch of tapes of him when he was over and he made comments um you know he knew that was going to be it for him but the, but they weren't going to not go um and uh Again, especially after the American Folk Blues Festival, that's what really opened the door over there to a lot of touring blues people. And then uh, in the 70s, the uh, people in France who uh, had black and blue records, and I'm not sure what their booking agency was, was called then, they brought a whole lot of people over, and um, it just kind of kind of went, went from there. And eventually these people figured out it wasn't necessarily, you know, heaven, but it still was a good way to go over once in a while and get a lot more recognition and more money than they were making in Chicago. In fact, sometimes I'd see people go over there and they'd do really well their first time over, like Lonnie Brooks, and then they'd come back to Chicago. And um, it was the same old fertilizer, you know. They'd come home really feeling good about themselves and their career, and a month after that, when they were back to the same old grind or not even grind, um, you know, they'd, they'd realize, well, it wasn't a total game changer. Right. Um, can I ask you about a few of the artists you worked with? Sure. Johnny Winter, somebody I saw, like it was my like third concert I ever saw. I was in grade nine. I was blown away. At that point, he was doing more rock than blues. But 
And, uh, you know, many, many years later, I got a chance to meet him. It was a huge thrill. Tell me about your work with Johnny Winter. Well, yeah, I just had a good email exchange with Tom Mazzolini yesterday and today about Johnny. But um, we we bonded because of his love of blues. He came in 78 to sit in with Sun Seals at the Wise Fools. And um, he wanted somebody to hang hang with. And Bruce was busy trying to run Alligator. So he was staying, Bruce was staying Johnny was staying with Bruce, but Bruce couldn't devote all the time to him. So he wanted somebody who uh, could hang with Johnny and talk about blues and listen to blues. And I was glad to fill that position. (laughs) And we bonded really well from that. Um, You know, I took him around to sit in with Otis Rush and sit in with Lonnie Brooks. Neither Lonnie he hadn't seen since 20 years earlier in Texas. And Otis he'd seen more recently, but not often. Um, so our bond was blues, and then when he started recording with Bruce for Guitar Slinger in 84, you know, it was pretty clear all around that I was going to be in. Every time Johnny would come through town, pretty much, he'd get together with me and Bruce, and we'd have listening sessions in his hotel room, and sometimes we'd take him around, but it was hard to take Johnny around because he was so conspicuous. I've, I've told people everybody wanted to either get him high, give him a demo, have sex with him or fight him you know just about anything except let him alone right. um Roy Buchanan was different you know he looked like my uncle the professor and he'd have a pipe and have a corduroy sport coat with elbow patches or something and people probably thought he was a relative you know not an amazing guitar player but um anyhow so um I, we did the first two alligator albums as a trio me Johnny and Bruce and unfortunately Johnny and Bruce just they wanted to get along, but I always said it was like a guy with snowshoes on walking through a minefield. Johnny had the snowshoes. He was hypersensitive, and he played to show off, and what he wanted was praise and all that. Bruce was the, the minefield. because um, He didn't mean it, but he radiated nervous tension, and Johnny would see Bruce sitting at the the board gritting his teeth with his head in his hands and think that that meant that Bruce didn't like what he was doing Hmm. Um, so then he'd start second guessing himself and uh, one time later when I was working with Johnny without Bruce but still for Alligator Johnny was second guessing himself because he didn't think Bruce would like what he was wanted to do and he would he hated what he thought Bruce would want him to do. So Johnny, do you realize he doesn't even need to be here for you to argue with him? <laughs> but but anyhow, after the second alligator album, which was serious business, um, it was apparent that Johnny and Bruce just couldn't work together anymore and I wasn't willing to be in that situation either. There was just too much tension going on and it was over nothing that anybody outside the booth could, would have heard is mostly just like little nuances of how the snare sounded and things like that. But uh, so Johnny went to Bruce and said, look, I want to stay on the label, but you and I just can't work together. I'd like to do the next one with Dick. And, you know, Bruce was gracious about it. And, you know, Third Degree is still one of my favorite projects, but I'm sure it was hard hard for Bruce. I mean, it's it's, you know, it had to in some ways be like I was you know, moving in with his ex-girlfriend, you know, because mm-hmm. he, you know, he's been rejected to make this happen. And I did everything I could to make a record that he would like and want on the label and all that. But I'm sure it wasn't all easy for him. But, you know, off of that, I ended up doing uh, four more albums with Johnny after Al- Alligator. And he told everybody I was his favorite producer and 
we just loved working with each other. Just the power of his music was awesome. He was a great friend. He, he did so much to enrich my life as did Bruce and Albert Collins. And, um, you know, I, I miss him as a friend as much as anything else. And probably our favorite times were when the engineer was putting mixes together when Johnny and I could just sit back for an hour or two and just chew the fat and talk about the old days and people and, and all that. Um, those were just wonderful times. And, you know, we had a, a lifetime full of them. But that's his heart. I still miss the heck out of him. But um, I tell people, number one, it was a bigger surprise that he made 70, given his lifestyle and his being an albino, mm -hmm. than that he passed away when he did. And number two, other than that it was way too soon, it was a heck of an exit strategy. No lingering, no suffering. He was doing what he loved with the people he loved less than an hour before he passed away. He was laughing and joking. So I'm glad that he went easily. And it's ironic with all the substances that he had encounters with during his life, um, what carried him out was cigarettes because right. it was his emphysema that left him vulnerable to pneumonia. That's what, what finally did it. But he loved blues. Um, I used to tell him I wanted to do for him what he did for Muddy, just put him in a position to do what he did well and not try to change who he was. And he told me the difference was that I was better organized that with Muddy, they'd just walk in and well, what are we going to do today? Well, what tape is on top of the pile? And I would give him homework so he could focus on the you know, four or five songs we were going to do the next day and come in ready. Tell, um, tell me about Albert Collins. Uh, Albert, I can't say enough great about him either. It continues to be a, a light of my life. When Ronnie Brooks and I see each other at a Ronnie gig, when he does an Albert Collins song, we catch each other's eyes and put our hands over our hearts. Um, I met Albert in Seattle. He had a West Coast booking agency. Um, so he, he just worked up and down the, the coast all the time, including a lot of private functions. And um, actually, when we got to be friends was on a Saturday when he had a horrible toothache and needed to find a dentist in Seattle. And I was able to find one for him. So he also told me, yeah, we got to be friends when he took me to the dentist. But then I, I wrote a Living Blues article um, about him. And um, then I moved back to Chicago and didn't see him till three years later when I reconnected with him at the San Francisco Blues Festival in 77. And shortly after that, it turned out that I was able to hook him up with his first gig in Chicago at the Wise Fools on his way over for his first trip to Europe, which was mostly to be on a TV show with a Dutch band called Barrel House, with whom he later recorded a live C CD, well, LP originally. Um, and um, during the course of that, <clears throat> I was able to talk Bruce into signing him. Bruce already had some interest in him. Uh, I think he'd seen him in Champaign about three years earlier on his way back to the ill-fated last Ann Arbor Blues Festival, which is in Windsor, Ontario, where Albert ended up not getting paid after all that travel. Um, but Bruce was very circumspect, and you had to show him why everything that could go wrong wasn't going to go wrong. Um, but eventually I was able to talk Albert, uh, Bruce into signing Albert. And Albert told me later that the offer was so low that he only accepted it because he thought I had a piece of the label. Um, 
which I only wish had been true. Um, I will say that when Bruce came back from Norway, when he was in the train wreck with Sun Seals over there, um, the first time we talked, he said, well, you almost had a label. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, so, um, um, you know, we ended up doing all the studio stuff, and Albert and Bruce had their ups and downs, too, and I was sort of Albert's shoulder and ear to, to cry on and kvetch to a lot of times and, you know, keep him in the fold and, and all that kind of stuff. But we were... We're great, great friends. I mean, what kind of sums up Albert, there was a night when he was passing through Chicago, but just had the night off. And Johnny was at the Park West, which was kind of an upscale venue. So I went with Albert to see Johnny. And then afterwards, we went back to Johnny's hotel room. And um, I was dropping Albert back up at his CD hotel room. And I was just starting to get serious about guitar then. So I said, Albert, if anybody offers you a good deal on a Fender amp, please let me know because I'm looking for it. Oh, I got an extra in the trailer. It's just dead weight. Take it. So um, he used to use a Fender Twin before he got the Fender Quad that, that he used for the last couple of decades for which he was famous. So he just gave me that Twin. Wow. And I still have it. With your association with Albert Collins, did you ever work with Mel Brown? Um, yeah, on Cold Snap. In fact... Um, I'll tell you a couple of funny things about that one. Um, Mel, um, he actually told me he had a nice archtop guitar to give me if I ever visited him in Windsor, but I never got up there. But um, when Mel came back to do Cold Snap, um, he just brought an ar archtop. And we were rehearsing a funk tune, and we all thought, wow, you know, a Fender guitar would be good rhythm sound on this. And I had a Strat. Um, so I said, I'll bring it tomorrow um, when we we're going to be recording the song. And as it turned out, once we got to the studio and he had a better amp, he really didn't need the Strat. But I was telling him, yeah, I got this Strat from a real good friend of mine I used to work with who just passed away named Andrew Brown. And Mel said, yeah, he's my cousin. I got those records. Hmm. So Andrew, Albert told me that Mel, after that first day of, uh, of recording, they're back at the hotel, and Mel was talking about me to Albert. He said, he knows everything about me. He even knows my people. <laughs> was there a moment, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there was many moments, but can you go back to that first time where all of a sudden you, you had this encounter with the blues that just blew you away? Other than listening to it and liking it, but once you got to meet some of the musicians well um you know seeing Ju the first real chicago blues band i saw was was junior wells in seattle and that was that was great and they were, they encouraged me to come down to the hotel or they were for the weekend and you know hang around and but there weren't many people like me at that time i i was in lewis myers's hotel room and a bass player popped in and lewis and i were talking about freddie king and the guy looked at me pointed to me and said he knows who freddie king is um, but uh, getting back to Chicago, the first time I saw Otis, he was playing a social club gig. I've still got the poster on the south side. And, um, you know, it was just so far beyond my expectations. And he played these just real, it was almost like Jerry Garcia. He just played these long, not overly complicated, but flowing lines. You know, it wasn't like short little bursts or, you know, anything like that. It was just so much more sophisticated. Um 
So, and then the the first real ghetto club gig I went to, which I still have the tape of, which was also Otis. I mean, just the whole vibe of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that was the real blues. There, there wasn't any doubt. And I've never forgotten that night. And seeing Wolf the first night, you know, he'd be sitting in his chair, but he'd tip the chair way forward and do little jokes with the microphone. And at that point, after he'd had his first heart attack, Sometimes the more fascinating part of him wasn't even the music. It was what he would say between the songs. Um, you know, so that was pretty awesome. And, and Earl Hooker, I mean, he was just amazing. So seeing him live for the first time, people didn't leave during his sets. I mean, he was, he was just almost hypnotic. How about in the studio? Can you give, and, and you've done some amazing albums, so this would be difficult as well. But I presume most of the songs were recorded Live off the floor, is that correct to say? Yeah, you know, later on there started being more more overdubbing. I mean, Johnny Winter never liked to use his scratch vocals, but right. particularly up to then, it was it was as live as, as we could get it. But, you know, there were a lot of different, uh, you know, every project leaves its, its impressions. But uh, like I say, for Johnny, just the sheer power, um, I still love Third Degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, Johnny Alls particularly loved uh, Let Me In. And um, with Albert, one of the things I'll never forget about him in the studio was that um, even at the studio or in rehearsal, it was really hard for him to stay right by the mic because he just couldn't help moving when he was playing, just dancing around and stuff like that. and, you know, we just were so so tight personally as always a lot, a lot of fun. When we were doing a second Alligator album, he was going to record a song I brought him by TV Slim called Don't Reach Across My Plate. And he was a little nervous about singing it. It was more a talking song with a lot of words. And so Bruce said, hey, loosen him up. So we went across the street to an international house of pancakes and just had some laughs for an hour or two and he went back in the studio and he was just in a perfect mood to do that song because um, I mean it was a joking kind of novelty song and he was just in a perfect frame of mind um, I also remember when we were recording Master Charge his wife was in the corner crying because her vision for the song had female background vocalists singing Master Charge Bank America and she already had gotten off on a bad foot with Bruce and uh, it was too bad it wasn't anything intentional so like because here we are recording the song that was sort of one of the songs he would become best known for eventually and she's weeping um Roy Buchanan I got lots of great memories of the studio with him partly because he was the most amazing technical guitar player that I ever ever saw and um it was almost all without effects. He had a delay pedal, but he couldn't remember what was in and what was out on it. All the rest was his hands and his amp. Um, But the other thing about Roy was, um, with Bruce, usually I would be out on the floor. I, you know, I'd be the traffic cop and the guy was communicating directly with the, with the band. And, um, you know, I could pick up that vibe and I could see when somebody popped a string or, you know, I'd signal when it was time for the bridge or, you know, things like that. Um, and Roy valued, he liked the feedback. So I'd be sitting closer to Roy than I am to you, but just right in front of him. And he'd play these things. And I mean, literally, my jaw would be hanging on, on the floor and he'd be looking at me like, is that okay? 
And um, when Roy was really into it, like I say, he'd be sitting down and he'd lift his legs. And when the band saw that he had his feet off the floor while he was playing, you know, they'd all be smiling because they knew that it was, was good to him. Uh, I know you, you, you spoke about um, knowing the material very well and, and because you were such a fan. But what made you a good producer? Uh, what do you think made you a well, good Well, part of it is I, I know there... There is an article about me in a Jimi Hendrix magazine, and B Bruce was quoted that he said, people wanted to please me because they thought I was so nice. <laughs> um, but, but I think they, they, they feel like I understand. They feel like I understand them as people, and they feel like I understand the music. And uh, Bob Porter told me on a blues cruise a couple of years ago, he said... Um, the way these people trust you, I've never seen anything like it. You know, which of course was a huge compliment. And uh, one did you time, know that? Did you? Could you feel that? Um, well, I mean, I don't know about the never seeing anything like it part, but <laughs> you know, people, you know, they they like working with me. I mean, I try to work positive, and you know, they know I know. Um, if I've got something to say, I, there's a reason. Um, Johnny Winter's manager at the end, Paul Nelson, t told me I was the only guy that could get Johnny to do anything over in the studio. Um, everybody else, he figured, no, nah, what was wrong with what I just did? But he figured when I asked for it, there was a reason for it, and he, and he would do it. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, that's a lot of it. I mean, Magic Sims bass player, told, Nick Holt, he told me once, oh, you're very understanding, and... Um, drummer who I had on a session with Little Smokey Smothers who was Albert King's drummer forever so we probably saw the other side of that particular spectrum um, you know he said you treat us like men it makes us want to play um, so you know pro hopefully knowing what I'm doing and trying trying to do it in a in a nice way and and when you were in the studio did you get that sense that you could um, easily get them the musicians to do what you had imagined well, you know, part of it is understanding the art of the possible. You know, you learn there are some concepts. I mean, particularly when it's somebody like Lurie Bell, who's so instinctive, you know, there are certain things you might try it once or twice and just see, he doesn't know what I'm trying to tell him, so I've got to let him do it his way. Right. But but in general, yeah, I mean, you know, they, you know, they they follow my lead and I don't want to dominate. In some ways, the less I have to do the happier I am because it means they've got a grip on their concept. But um, no, you know they they, they believe I, I know what what I'm what I'm doing. I mean, Lurie's told me that a, a bunch of times. Right. Um, you know, they know I'm serious about it. They know nobody's going to outwork me. They know I'm going to try to do it in a, a nice way. But they know that I'm about business and that it's for <clears throat> the cause of trying to make the the best music that we can make. So one other person I want to ask you about. Um, the person who actually helped me get in touch with you was Bruce Siglar, and whose name has come up many times. Yeah, and I learned more from him than anybody else. Tell me about, about that relationship, because it's a long relationship, and, and you've gone through a lot of, I guess, ups and downs, but tell me about how, what me, how meaningful that Oh, incredibly. I mean, I, you know, he's, he's, again, one of the handful of people who's done the most to elevate and enrich my life and you know I, I tell people one of the main things I learned from Bruce was don't settle you know he'll do everything he can to make it be as good as it can can be mm -hmm. and um, you know 
uh, it's the opposite of close enough for horseshoes. But, um, you know, we started out just, you know, we we're among the few people on the scene and in the Bob Kester access and, right. you know, the little small circle. We called it ourselves Blues Amalgamated. Um, me and Bruce and Jim O'Neill and Bob Kester and um, a guy named Rick Crayer, who's a musician and producer around Chicago, played in Muddy's last band. There are, there are a few others, Amy O'Neill, of course, um, Wes Race, um, who helped, was really the center of the grapevine. But um, and then Bruce started, I met Bruce before he started Alligator Bread just once. I walked into Pepper's Lounge with Billy Way Arnold and Lewis Myers, and Bruce was sitting there hanging with Junior Wells and Lewis and Billy Boy and I had been having a debate over whether Junior or Little Walter played harp on a particular early muddy side. So we went over to ask Junior, and so I met Bruce, and then he came through Seattle with Hound Dog Taylor, uh, about a year and a half after that, and we we hung around some, and uh, then when I came back to go to Ann Arbor in '72 and '73, we hung some more, and then when I came back to Chicago like I say he was on the scene and of course I already had tremendous admiration of what he was doing with Alligator and um, you know we obviously had a, a lot in common and were around a lot and got to be very good friends and like I say I'm still not exactly sure what it was that um, made him think that I could be a musical asset but um, you know the opportunities he gave me and the knowledge that I gleaned from him are beyond expression plus i've got a tremendous respect for his integrity and his honesty mm-hmm. you know he he does royalties on time they're what they should be um you know i mean people badmouth him a, a lot but um a lot of it is just completely undeserved it's jealousy it's you know blue and i mentioned before blues fans love the underdog and once you've succeeded you know, then you're the establishment. And I think he's suffered unduly from some of that and been overly stereotyped. I heard people talk about the alligator sound. And, you know, by the point that people started stereotyping that, he was already producing a lot less of the alligator output just because he didn't have time anymore. And he had too many releases he had to get out for him to be producing at all. Um, But like I say, just his, his commitment was maybe what, I appreciate the most about him. Um, the downside of that is sometimes at times it's very hard for him to let things happen and let musicians work things out and understand the gap between conception and execution or just relax a little bit. But um, the plus side is, like I say, he'll, he would do anything and spare no expense to try to make it be the best that it could be and be fair to the artists and treat them with the respect that they deserved and pay them um, what they um, deserve to get for it. So um, I think he's done it in a way that any person would have a right to be incredibly proud of. And I'm proud of my association with him, my friendship with him. It's always going to be one of the things that opened doors, made things possible, brought me joy, brought me enlightenment. How has the blues changed in your time? Um, well, the whole concept of the blues changing is kind of an interesting one. I did a colloquium in Belgium in 1984, loosely about Charlie Patton, although I talked about Wolf and his guitar player, Willie Johnson. 
but there was some kind of discussion with the audience there and first people were saying why don't you know young people play the blues they want to play all this this different stuff instead and um, then they say why aren't new people playing blues well you don't want them to play the same old same old but you won't let it change and um, you know blues has always taken in it it's been to some extent a reflection of the world around it so all the changes in the world around it uh, have been manifest in the music and even the role that it used to take has been supplanted i think and this goes back i wrote an article about this living blues around 1990 um, but, you know, in the 50s, the Chicago blues, if you think about the songs of Willie Dixon, they were, you know, a young person building himself up and trying to figure out an identity and bragging. And, um, you know, then the blues kind of shifted over and, you know, bless Robert Cray's heart and Bruce Bromberg, who's one of my best friends and greatest producing inspirations and mentors heart too. But Robert's like, well, should I feel guilty or not? You know, it really wasn't a racial or cultural thing so much anymore but um you know it, it it's absorbed all the kind of musical influence since then not necessarily for the better i think the only people who really did something cool in the blues with disco were johnny guitar watson and bobby rush and rap and blues has always been an easy, easy alliance there have been some well intended attempts but i don't think any has resulted in anything i would consider close to a classic musically mm-hmm. um the whole um, reference point has changed. I mean, it used to be people who came up from the South and they had a Southern rhythm. It was slower, more country. Um, you know, the city things are harder, faster, louder. Um, that, that gets reflected in the music too. And, but part of it is just not having the same people to learn to learn off of or, you know, not, not, being, not hearing B.B. King at his prime on the jukebox. Um, not being able to walk into a club and hear Otis or Magic Sam or Luther Allison or people like that. Um, you know, clubs don't have pianos anymore. Hardly anybody uses a harmonica in their band anymore. Um, you know, a lot more use of effects than the, than there, there used to be. Um, Do you worry about the future of the blues? Uh, well... Not really. I mean, sometimes I'm sad about how much is gone that I love. And last year I took I, I let two safari leader, leading exercises, one to the south side and one to the west side, to show documentary people um, where everything used to be. And, and there's just so little of it there, especially on the west side. There's virtually nothing left. On the south side, there's pretty close to virtually nothing but at least the Teresa's building is standing and for now Muddy's old house is still standing beyond that there's virtually nothing left but um, number one is it's always going to change number two is I can't do anything about it and number three is because of the recording industry you've still got the cumulative history of it you know not so much you know obviously I can't go tape record um, you know, 30-year-old Magic Sam anymore or whatever. But, um, you know, I mean, YouTube. I mean, back when I was starting out, if you wanted to learn how a guitar player played, 
you had to just guess about so many things. Now you can see their acts. You can see whether they use a pick or what kind of a pick. You can figure out how they tune. Um, you know, and, and a lot of performers, you know, you, I mean, you don't have to imagine what it was like watching T-Bone Walker do splits. You know, you can just pull it up on YouTube and right. see Guitar Shorty do his somersaults or you know, whatever it is. So um, Joe Lewis Walker told me a long time ago, I'm not just competing against new releases. I'm competing with Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and everybody that's been before me. And when he told that to me, is when CDs were really starting to boom and everything was being reissued. Um, but that still is true. You know, you, you've got the cumulative history so much more available. I mean, when I started, there wasn't even a, disco- a post-war blues discography. Mm-hmm. But so you've met and worked with a bunch of amazing blues musicians who are real characters. Is that the character part of it? Is that still around? I know that they're still. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Still see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's still basically a game of self-taught people who don't even know what the rules are, you know, at at the the real gut bucket, what's left of the ghetto level. But sure, there's still um, a lot of great characters around these days um you know i'm I'm not going to name any names right right off hand but you know that's still a big charm of it in fact um you know my girlfriend now and some of her predecessors they've told me that's what they enjoy the most about it is just the characters that they run into on on the scene so tell me about getting inducted to the blues hall of fame what did that mean to you well that actually happened not so much because of my accumulated career, it was because of fortuitous timing and an impromptu speech that I gave. And uh, that was in 2013. And that was the year Jody Williams, who's another person I've produced, who's a very close friend of mine and one of the people I respect most as a person. He's just so together. Um, but uh, he got elected and I knew that I was going to induct him. So I had my speech all prepared. And then I walked into the reception before the banquet, and I was cornered by Bruce and Bob Porter. They said, we need somebody to talk about Earl Hooker. Can you do it? And I said, yeah, I can talk about this guy for 10 minutes. I mean, he's way at, you know, right at the top of my list. I knew him well, and I studied his music to death and, and still just in awe of him. And um, the only thing I had to do is just go on my phone and verify his date of birth um, but I got up and, you know, gave a speech and hit the highlights. And afterwards, all kinds of people were coming up to me the rest of that BMA week and, and saying, that was unbelievable. You went up there without notes and you were coherent and erudite. And it wasn't intended as a campaign speech, but that's basically a room full of voters. And it just <laughs> kind of reminded them that they hadn't gotten to me yet. So the next year I got voted in after just being on the outskirts of the fringes prior to well, that. Well, it was well-deserved. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I earned it. But, yes, for um, sure. you know, the reason it happened when it did was because of that speech. But, of course, it was a great, great honor. Um, I can think of a lot of people that should have gotten in before me. But, um, you know, I'm very grateful for it and, you know, try to honor it and support it in, in every every way I can. It's one of the nicest things that ever happened to me. I wish my father had been alive for it. But uh, like I say, a lot of it was just uh, the right speech in the right room at the right time. Is it, was there a point from that young man who just 
fell in love with the blues, who got to work with the musicians um, to the point where you, you felt that you were part of that scene, that you were a major contributor to that scene. Do you remember a moment like well, that? Well, you know, we all knew we were part of that scene pretty early on because it was a pretty small scene and it just sort of happened with with longevity that we sort of got recognized for it as the as the years went passing by. Um, in fact, there was a 30th anniversary Blues Amalgamated reunion at the Chicago Blues Festival a few years ago, and um, Steve Chomashevsky, who used to work at Delmark, and, uh, you know, help, I helped him with uh, Cold Day and Hell by Otis, he made up T-shirts for us all, and that was what it said as the years <laughs> go passing by. But... Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I knew her early on. I mean, there just weren't that many people doing it. And I mean, I was part of the living blues scene and, the, you know, the Delmark scene and the alligator scene. So, um, I mean, I never was striving for recognition, you know, and people have said, told me that, you know, Albert Collins used to tell me, you like to stand in the background. And I'm, and I'm still happy to do that. I mean, my deal for producing... I've always said is I don't want people to listen and say, wow, Dick Sherman sure did a great job. I want them to listen and think the musicians did a great job and were at their peak and sound like them. You know, it's not to put my imprint, it's to help them. And really, consistently, one of my main motivations for being a producer has been helping my friends. That's mm -hmm. usually who I work with. When you look back, does it surprise you, the journey you've taken? Sure. Um, it wasn't until my late 30s that I thought I might live to be the age I am now. I, th I figured I was just going to get snuffed on my way to my car f some night, um, leaving a club. Okay, was there ever a chance? Like, did you ever come well, close to any none danger? Well, none of my friends got killed that way. Steve Cushing got shot, but he earned it. He was messing around with the <laughs> woman he shouldn't have been messing around with. But, you know, some of us got stuck up or had knives pulled on us. But, you know, at that time, I mean, all the clubs were in these just horrible areas where nobody with any sanity would have would have gone um and there were some nights when you know there there were rumors of you know riots in the black community and the musicians say hey uh, stay off the scene this weekend um but um so finally around my late 30s i kind of figured you know i might make it to retirement i better start planning you know for that as, as a contingency and you know as you go along um, you know things change and people change and younger people start coming up to it and you, you know you start gradually evolving um, yeah I remember people started calling me legendary at a certain point and Bruce and I would laugh and say isn't legendary one step before death <laughs> <laughs> well it's been such an honor to meet you and, and to chat about your your life in, in the blues. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you. This is a fun one. Thank you.